Our sermon text this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'll read the last uh, verses of that chapter beginning in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor man, a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is the Trinity season of the lectionary of the church year, and you have a focus on the teachings of Jesus during this time of year. And we read from, just heard from 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul applying uh, the teachings of Jesus to the Corinthians. We heard out of Mark 6, where Jesus is teaching the people. Uh, what's going to happen soon, and that uh, people are going to rebel against him, and it's going to be worse for Israel and Judea than it is for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, So those are part of his teachings on how Christians are to live in the kingdom that has come with Christ. Remember when he came, the first thing he said is, Behold, the kingdom has come near. Repent. And so he's preparing people how to live. Preeminently, His teaching in the New Testament is focusing, and particularly on Mark 6 there, on how the Christian is to live pre-70 A.D., how to live in the dying days of the older covenant while preparing for the new covenant uh, that comes in full glory after Jesus destroys Jerusalem and the land of Judea after the Christians flee, all right? Particularly the uh, temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. So Jesus is preparing his men and the church for the future. He is teaching them how his appearance, his coming changes history, how it completely reorients the future from night to day, from the old covenant to the new covenant, from judgment to grace. Of course, there's still judgment, of course. You can't read Revelation 2 and 3 and say that uh, Jesus doesn't judge us. Additionally, Jesus is preparing his men with wisdom for the future as they expand the kingdom. And he gives them uh, those pearls of wisdom, even in Mark 6 there. And as they expand the kingdom, moving from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost parts of the land. And he's preparing them for persecution even. He sends them out uh, by 12 and tells them, uh, and the other uh, parallels as well, that, that they may be driven out of cities. And they're to shake the dust off of their... Uh, garments and go to the next town. Now, where would he draw from in teaching them wisdom for the future? 
Well, you know the answer to that, the whole Bible, which was the Old Covenant at that point. Uh, we know that from Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Jesus is talking to his two disciples. They don't know who he is. But it tells us in verse 27 of Luke 24, quote, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he talks to them. And you remember after they get uh, where they're going and they're talking to others, they said, don't you remember our ears were burning because he was opening the Old Testament and teaching us all these things about uh, him. And we didn't even recognize him until he broke bread. Uh, because Jesus uses the whole Bible to speak of himself, I'm guessing that part of that message of wisdom to the disciples would have come from the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly uh, chapter 9 of verses 11 to 18. Now, before I actually get into that text, um, before I go any further in speaking from Ecclesiastes about Jesus, uh, we have a problem, and that is that we're moderns. We're Americans, okay? And when we come to Ecclesiastes, uh, we have two problems with this book. The first one is we can't get past the V word. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's the V word of Ecclesiastes, which is vanity, right? It's the word vanity, and it kills our interpretation of the book. It appears in 15% of the verses of Ecclesiastes. The second problem we moderns have uh, is this. We think that Ecclesiastes is a bunch of timeless truths, a bunch of moralisms, that if we just memorize uh, their generic sayings of wisdom, they apply for everyone, everywhere, all the time. And they're ambiguous, okay? So we, we think impersonally about Ecclesiastes. Let's look first at this word vanity. In chapter 1, verse 2, you normally hear read this. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times in that one verse. Now the NIV phrases it, if you're using that paraphrase, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, neither one of these words, vanity or meaningless, adequately captures the underlying word in the Hebrew, which is havel or helvel. Vanity connotes either excessive pride and conceit. Think maybe President Trump, okay? Uh, meanings which are not in view in the book. Or if you're thinking of vain, it implies uselessness or futility. But the author is not maintaining that all of life is useless or futile, nor is he saying all is meaningless. If that were true, he should have stopped the book there, right? But he writes 12 chapters more. Uh, the rest of his book would be meaningless if everything is meaningless. So the best rendering for Havel is another V word. And it's not victory, okay? It's vapor or vaporous. It can also, this word can be rendered breath or perishableness, giving the sense of fleeting or ungraspable. You know what I'm talking about. On a cool morning, you breathe and you try to grab it. You can't grab it, right? It's like breath or vapor that perishes before your very eyes. You can't wrap your hands around it uh, or your mind. It's like grasping olive oil. Or when you were younger, you boys, when you're working with dad and you stick your hand in the motor oil, you can't grab it. It just flees from your fingers. Uh, throughout the Psalms, this is how it's translated. Psalm 39.5, surely every man at his best is a mere breath. <sighs> gone. A here for a moment and then gone, vanishing forever. Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of man. 
that they are a mere breath. They're as nothing. They're a vapor that disappears. Psalm 144, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. The shadows are like vapors here and then gone. We've all chased when we were young uh, the shadows of the sun and the clouds, and it's there, and you're, you're in the shadow, and it's gone. Oh, it's over there, and you've got to go along. So here, the thoughts of men, and even the days of men, are like vapors. You're here, and then gone. So we should render verse 2 of chapter 1 this way. Vapors of vapors, says the preacher. Vapors of vapors, all is vaporous. Okay? Meaning that life is like a breath, like a wisp of smoke, a puff of air that disappears. Uh, it eludes your grasp. That's how life is. This is the sum total of life under the sun for the human creature. Under the sun is the reference for where we are on the earth. Okay, It, it rises in the east, sets in the west. That's how we view things. Life is frustrating, maddening, apparently futile unwieldy, uncontrollable, utterly intractable to the creature. You cannot control it, let alone comprehend it. Uh, last weekend, I preached up in Martinsburg uh, for uh, Pastor Andrew Isker, who recently lost his four-month-old baby. Oh, this is, was life. A mama later down at 9 p.m. checked on her at 9.30, and she was dead. Uh, a four-month, healthy, cherubic-looking baby. Uh, it's... It's frustrating, it's unwieldy, it's utterly intractable. You can't understand that. Well, that's the message of Ecclesiastes. What Solomon intends to teach you is that real biblical wisdom is founded on the honest acknowledgement that this world's course is enigmatic. That most, if not all, what happens is uh, quite inexplicable, incomprehensible to us, and quite out of your control or out of your leverage. Here's another example. It's like the Democrats. It's incomprehensible then that Trump won and that Hillary isn't president, okay? Mrs. Clinton, I mean, it's it just, they can't comprehend that. It wasn't supposed to happen that way. They rigged the Democratic National Convention so that Bernie wouldn't win, and then they had the FBI and the others, apparently, so that Trump wouldn't win, and yet he still, he, he got elected. You know, it wasn't supposed to happen. And he's still president. We've done everything we can. We've thrown at him the whole government, and he's still there. I don't know how much longer he'll be there, but uh, it's incomprehensible. We cannot leverage the course of this world this way and that way to suit our purposes. The godly, wise man and woman will humbly concede that God has hidden uh, from us almost everything uh, that we should like to know about his providential purposes. Therefore, all of your attempts to influence or comprehend the world in the course of your lives are futile. Notice, I didn't say life is futile, but your attempts to control it are futile, useless, vain, empty vapors, a vapor of vapors. The wise man learns to walk, how? By faith and not by sight. The life of faith, Solomon is teaching, is not grounded in our ability to discern the meaning of everything in our world. Faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things concerning things not yet seen. That's living and walking by faith, Hebrews 11. So Ecclesiastes then is the book in the Old Testament about 
faith. This is how the man of faith looks at the world. A wise, faithful person will come to these convictions. It's in God's hands. And I'll talk about when we realize that in just a minute what that means. So when you see the word vanity from now on in this book, translate it in your minds as vapor. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. And some ESV editions now are rendering it in the footnote as vapor. They're finally admitting that, but we've all heard it from the King James or other places. Uh, remember, 15%, another 30 verses, uh, you'll have vanity or vain, and it's not. It's vapor. Now, secondly, that's the first. So change in your mind the V word from vanity or vain to vapor or vapor. Secondly, we think of the book, as I mentioned, as a bunch of timeless truths, particularly moralisms uh, that you can apply like this. Son, Samson was a good man. You be good. That's a moralism. He was strong. You grow up and be strong. Eat your spinach. Okay, be strong. That's a moralism. And Samson's not a moralistic person. He's a picture of Jesus with all his warts. He's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? He's not just some proverb, all right? And, 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 and personally so. He's good, you be good. Uh, we think of Ecclesiastes as tidbits of wisdom, that if you could just line them up and memorize them, uh, you'll be wise and witty. And most of your commentaries are that way. That's how they treat it, like the book of Proverbs. It is wisdom literature. But right, not so, though. This book, Ecclesiastes, is about Jesus Christ, as he told those two on the road to Emmaus. Now, let's see if that's not true in our passage. There are two sections, as you noticed, on your device or your Bible, if you had it open, verses 11, 12, and then 13 uh, through the end. Uh, the first section is about this. Wisdom, if I were to summarize it, wisdom understands God is in control of life, not man. God is in control, not man. Let me reread that. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are, that are taken in an evil net. Like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in evil time. When it suddenly falls upon them. It's like Doria swimming around, right? She's caught and in a baggie. Okay? Uh, for you kids, you understand that. Under the sun, from our perspective, it's the world that man can observe and the world that we seek to control and influence. It's our ground level observation. We, uh, the, the point from where we try to make the world work for us, okay? A point of reference in this confusing world we called life. Now, to, the, to be swift, to be a warrior, to have bread or wealth or favor, Solomon is not saying that these things are bad or unnecessary. Uh, that, uh, but what he is saying is that they're not determinative. They're not determinative. Uh, that there are no prescribed rules that can guarantee success. There's no assurance of success. You may have uh, swiftness. You may be strong. You may have lots of food or wealth or favor. But that doesn't determine uh, the end. Heroes, if you're swift or a warrior, they're always expected to triumph. But the Bible teaches us that that doesn't often happen. Uh, when Gideon makes the effort that Israel then worships, here's this faithful man 
And he makes this effort and turns Israel into a nation of idolaters. Don't you read that? You grieve when you read that, right? You know the end of the story. It's got to be destroyed later on. Or when David falls with Bathsheba, is it not distressing to read that? Here's a man after God's own heart, a holy man. And he takes his neighbor's wife and then murders the guy. And he, oh, it shouldn't be that way. He, he's got better wisdom. Or how about when you read the story of, of Josiah? Uh, refuses to listen to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh says, don't come out after me. I'm on a mission from God. Don't come out or I'll have to kill you. And what's Josiah do? Goes out and gets killed. Okay? It, you, you think, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, though these things are good that he mentions in the text, uh, strength and, and swiftness and bread and wisdom, uh, riches and favor, they do not necessarily guarantee advantage over others in life. They can give you an edge, but they're not necessarily determinative in the end. Well, what is then determinative? Well, verse 11 says time and chance. Time and chance. And as Reformed people, we don't like that word chance. And, and literally, that's not what's there. It's time and an incident or a, a timely incident, okay? An accident, maybe a fatal accident that overtakes you. No one can predict when something tragic may happen that puts an end to your ability to enjoy life, to achieve one's goals, or fulfill one's potential. Think of those three bloggers, video bloggers. You know what I'm talking about? They had a, uh, just recently, they fell to their deaths in a waterfall, and the name of their blog was Life is Beautiful, I think. And they're out there, and the girl falls over the edge, and the two guys jump over to save them, and they're all drowned. I mean, they're young people in their 30s. I don't think they went up there thinking they would be dead that day. Okay? And what the text tells us is that every person has his or her own inevitable time. That is, the time of death. But no one knows when that will be, uh, at least under the sun. The incident is timely, only in the sense that it will happen in time, but the timing <clears throat> is unpredictable. In such a world, all mortals are like fish and birds that wander about innocently, but all of a sudden they may be caught. The snare may spring or the net be cast. They're unaware of it until it happens. Everything is subject to chance under the sun from our perspective, which is why Solomon encourages you, nay, he commands you to enjoy life at every opportunity. Let me read you a little earlier in the chapter. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vaporous life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So uh, don't try to manipulate life. Don't try to control it. Rather, be thankful. Be grateful. Um, eat your food and drink your wine with a merry heart. Uh, husbands, enjoy life with the wife. She's your reward. Enjoy her. And you wives, let your husbands enjoy you. Okay? And I won't go any further than that. But that's the point. That's what he's saying. Enjoy life with your wife. Six times this refrain appears in the book. Enjoy, eat and drink and make your soul enjoy the good of its labor for it's the gift of God. So what Christian wisdom advocates 
is celebration, rejoicing, enjoying what God has given you to enjoy. Solomon's advice is enjoy the small gifts that God brings your way. Man's true lot in this world is not firstly understood in terms of work or hard work, but joyous reception of the gifts of God. And one of those gifts is the ability to toil and labor. All right, approach life receptively, gratefully, enjoying God's gifts as they unfold. And, and probably Pastor Duane has mentioned the six-fold act of transformation. Man takes hold of something and then he gives thanks because God gave me this. Let's say it's your dirt in your backyard and you take hold of it and you say, Lord, thank you for this dirt that I'm going to make vegetables out of. And then after you give thanks, you grab the the spade and you turn it over and you plant the seeds and you water it and you evaluate it and then later on you pluck it and then you taste it and, and uh, evaluate it again and then you give it, you know, put it on the table and people enjoy it, okay? That's what God wants you to do. You, you grab hold of creation and then you give thanks. That's what we as Christians should do. That's not what pagans do. They don't give thanks. They think they want it or they earned it or they deserve it. Wisdom does not teach us how to master the world nor does it give us techniques for programming life such that it becomes orderly and predictable. Rather, instead of man seeking to control or leverage things according to our labor and toil, we instead rejoice in the good that our labor accomplishes, that your labor accomplishes. And you acknowledge that it's a gift from God. Thank you, Lord, I got to work today and I made it home safely to see my wife and my kids. And thank you for taking care of them. And, and thank you for this food that my wife made. And, uh, you know, so Solomon, uh, that's what Solomon is teaching. And he says in verse 11, though, he says, chance happens to them all. The question we have to ask, though, is it chance? Is it random? Well, I've already answered that, no. But Ecclesiastes, in a famous portion that you older ones heard in a rock song when you were growing up, uh, chapter 3 says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every uh, an appointed time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Which one of you determined when to be born? This is what God is doing under heaven, okay? Uh, a time to plant and a time to pluck up. Well, you think you're planting, but God moved the moon and the stars and the seasons, so you could plant then, okay? Uh, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, down and a time to build up. God is choosing and doing those things. So God, your creator, is in control. He has appointed your time. So rest in his providence, his planning, his good designs. It is impossible to resist him, is what Solomon is saying. And you know the phrase, resistance is futile. <laughs> okay, that's the true futility, to resist the Lord. So enjoy what Solomon is saying, enjoy his ordinations, what he's bringing, because you can't control them. Enjoy them and obey him. Uh, life is vaporous to us under the sun, but not to him. Now, do you think Jesus was teaching his disciples these truths? Well, yes, he feasted with them. What was he called? A drunkard and a glutton. Everybody else is fasting. He's eating and drinking. And then, of course, we see the apostles doing that in Acts 5. They get beaten, and what do they do? They rejoice, and they give thanks. Thank you, Lord, that we were beaten for Jesus' name. So while this first section, 11 and 12 verses, teach you that wisdom understands that God is control of life, it also functions as an introduction or a prelude to the short story that follows. 
verses 13 to 18. Let me reread it again for you. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So what's the story? We have a poor wise man in a small city with a few men up against a great king with lots of soldiers building siege words to take over this city. Doesn't look good, does it? The king appears, though, to have the advantage, the determinative edge. He's got men, he's got soldiers, he's got a good voice, uh, he's got uh, uh, earth-moving equipment, uh, and, and there's only a few guys in this city going up against him, okay? Uh, will it come out as it purely ought to with time and materials and resources being the victor against scarcity and poverty? Will it come out that way? No. It doesn't happen as it seems that it should under the sun. This poor man delivers his city by wisdom, by the fear of God, by the application of God's word to his world in relationship to that world. Now, we're not told what he says, or how he expresses that wisdom, or even what he does. It's just by his wisdom. The conclusion of this story, wisdom is better than strength. Verse 16. Uh, the words of the poor wise man heard in the quietness of his encircled city are better than the uproarious shouting of the king amongst his foolish soldiers outside who are building the siege works. Verse 17. Uh, wisdom is better than weapons of war. We often say the you know, the pen is mightier uh, uh, than the sword, right? Maybe that came from here, for all I know. But even this parable reverberates back to the first point made so simply in verses 11 and 12, that God is in control, not man. Does wisdom elevate this poor man in the eyes of the community? Is he admired, revered, honored, remembered? They put a garland on his head, lift him up on a chair and carry him around the town? Does he receive rewards and wealth for his wisdom under the sun? No, <laughs> it doesn't happen, okay? Even the possession of wisdom, the fear of God and its application, do not guarantee one's advantage, one's triumph, one's success, one's recognition under the sun. As verse 11 said, there is not always bread to the wise. This guy's not remembered, he's not rewarded. Things really are vaporous. Yet wisdom, Solomon says, is better than strength. But even the wise use of wisdom does not guarantee one of his proper recognition. We all, we all know that's true, right? We all know plenty of people who have done great things. I mean, Gore invented the internet and he hadn't gotten the praise for that, right? I mean, he's had to go around and tell people that and nobody's recognized him for that. Um, normally, a person would be recognized for such a victory as this, but God has the final say, and he doesn't always choose to have wisdom recognized. Now, now, do you see how this story points to Jesus Christ? Jesus was humble. Jesus was poor. He was lowly, exercising and owning all the attributes of wisdom in the scriptures. He was this poor, wise man 
who saves the city of God. He saves the church. He saves the church, the city of God, from Satan, the great king. Satan had all his subjects shouting what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus was the last faithful Jew standing. Everybody had deserted him. He was the last faithful guy. But was he exonerated? He had been saving the city for three years, hadn't he? He'd been healing, teaching them the truth, opening up God's word, walking around the land, taking heat, but healing people. Was he commemorated at this point? Was he highly honored for his wisdom? Was he made ruler and remembered by the people at the appropriate time under the sun? No. Or was his wisdom despised and his words not heeded as the poor man in the story? Yes, they killed him. What did the people of Israel say? What did the Jerusalem say? We have no king but Caesar. Let his blood be upon our heads and the heads of our children. The little they know, they got their wish, right? Forty years later. And again, they, they didn't think that was coming. Okay, they thought they had things in hand. They thought they had a determinative edge. And so did Satan. Hey, I'm killing the Son of Man on the cross. I'm winning. But little did he know that Jesus' feet were on the top of the skull, the place of the skull. Then in his death, he's crushing Satan himself. That's another sermon. Did not one sinner, Judas, destroy much good? That's how this passage ends. One sinner destroys much good. Did not one sinner put an end to the life of Jesus, destroying the only righteous man ever born? It's overwhelming when you think about what he did to our Lord. And he did so by an underhanded betrayal at the end of an embracing kiss. Uh, talk about betrayal. Did not one sinner destroy a lot of good? Yes. But there's good news. That betrayal, of course, was not the end of the matter. And here's a twist on the twist, okay? Uh, because God is in control. Christ was exalted. He is exalted. Far above all worldly wisdom, above all power and dominion, he sits at the right hand of God today, above every name that's ever been named. He was remembered by the only one that counts, his father, who honored him and continues to honor him as his son as he sits at the right hand. Which leads us to some closing observations and implications. First of all, from verse 12, you know not your time. You know not your time. Famous phrase, man knows not his time, King James language. So ponder that and meditate on it. Uh, you don't know your time. So live each day appropriately before the face of God, quorum Deo, the Latin phrase. Uh, for in the next instant, you may be standing before him like those three vloggers. I don't know how you say it, video bloggers. Uh, you know, they're having fun out in God's creation. I don't think they were recognizing it was God, but the next moment, they're all drowned and dead. Uh, you know not your time. Secondly, you know not your time, but it will come. It will come. You cannot stop it. Uh, you cannot prevent it. Death and taxes, right? Uh, even President Trump hasn't gotten rid of taxes yet. Um, he's helping. Glad for that. Uh, you cannot stop it. You cannot prevent your death, and neither should you. It is but your entrance into glory. 
Look forward to that day as you rejoice each and every day, even as you work hard and apply wisdom every day, and as you sit at home at night and you have your lemonade or, or tea. What do they drink in North Carolina? Um, beer, you know. Uh, John's right next to a brewery, okay? So uh, sit at home and give thanks and give glory to God. It is your death that you live for. Didn't Jesus live that he might die for you? Shouldn't you follow in his footsteps? Hasn't he ordained that you should die and shed this mortal body for that which is immortal and unstained by sin and by your own sin? That's the truth, isn't it? We can have joy on our deathbeds. We can, we can die rightfully. Now, you, you practice this every day, most of you. You die for others. Those of you uh, husbands, you die for your wife and for your children. Uh, you know, you go to work every day. What do you do with that money? You give it to your wife, and she spends it. I was a supply officer in the Marine Corps. What do, what do supply officers do? They're in the rear with the gear. They live for everybody else on the front lines, okay? And that's what husbands do and fathers. <laughs> they make all the money. They give it to their wife and their kids, okay? Um, you die every, and your wives do the same thing. You die for your kids. You do the dishes three times a day. You change all the diapers. You vacuum over and over and over and over. And yet it keeps the house clean and uh, your kids clean and Department of Child and Family Service doesn't have to come near, okay? Um, you also die every night. You go to sleep. That's a death. I mean, you know that biblical language. But you, you give control to God every night when you go. You don't know what's going to happen that night. Uh, I found out this morning John lives under the flight path of the airport. Hey, an airplane could crash, you know, and killed us all last night. Uh, you don't know. You, you go to, you die. I, I think that's a picture of what's going to happen. At one point, you're finally going to close your eyes and you're not going to open them again. But you can trust that you're in God's hands because he's been taking care of you all of life. You, you woke up this morning. He took care of you. But at some point, he's going to say, it's time to come home. So remember that. Uh, live for that death. Thirdly, remember too that your works and wisdom will not always be remembered, but may be despised and even forgotten. Your work and your wisdom will not always be blessed or rewarded in this life under the sun, but that's okay. You don't work for man's recognition, right? You work for the master's recognition. What do you want to hear? Well done, Good and faithful servant, right? <laughs> That's what you want to hear. Well done. Come on in. You know, good and faithful servant. Uh, what he thinks is what really matters. His evaluation is the final measure. So ponder that. Remember that under the sun, you may not always see the blessing as your faithfulness. Uh, just like the poor man who saved the city. Just like Jesus who was rewarded with death for all the healing. The complete opposite. Talk about irony for all the healing. Fourthly, train yourself up as you read the Bible to see Jesus in the Old Testament. It's all about him. These stories, these wisdom, they're not just tidbits of truth. They're talking about him because 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that he is the embodiment of wisdom. So as you look at these things and these passages, uh, dead, I'm just going to look ahead. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. How does that point to Jesus? You've got to do some work there. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Well, we know how that applies. Um, you know, but uh, no, you think about how does this point to Christ? How is this teaching me about Jesus? And lastly, do not let the world's evaluation of Jesus 
uh, rule in your heart, in your mind, in your life, in your family, in this church. He was the poor man. He is the despised man. He's often remembered what? Only as a great philosopher or a good, he's a good man. Jesus was just a good man. They can write him off, okay? Um, good teacher. Just like up there with Buddha, okay? Uh, and, and, but he's not remembered, certainly, as the deliverer, the warrior, the savior uh, the, of the, that he is. Nor is he remembered as the savior that the world needs. Men despise him to their own destruction, to their own foolishness. So understand this, that the world has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible Jesus Christ for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator and savior who is blessed forever. So don't you follow the, the world in their vanity. Rather, in this vaporous life, follow Jesus, rejoicing and giving thanks to the Father from whom all good gifts come. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this wisdom. We thank you for this incredible picture of Jesus Christ who was humble and faithful. And though the world did not and often does not recognize him. You did. You remembered. And so help us to be encouraged that you remember us. And while we cannot see what is going to happen or even understand why uh, what happens uh, does happen, help us to rest in you, to enjoy our lives, to give thanks, to eat and drink and enjoy our family and our church family and others that you've made. Help us uh, to praise you that you are in control. Help us to relax and rest in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.